our series on Ephesians this week. We've been studying the book of Ephesians all this fall, and today is the last day. I'm kind of sad because I like Ephesians a lot. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to look at a, a really fun series um, starting next week during Advent on, uh, on the servant songs in Isaiah. I'll give you more information about that next week. But we're finishing up Ephesians today. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to the last chapter of Ephesians, chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 10 through 20. Listen now as I read from God's Word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. We don't say that flippantly or just because it's something nice to say when we're finished reading. We want to proclaim it. We want to tell ourselves that truth. That it's your word that lasts. That though the flowers and the grass may fade, your word stands forever. So we pray, Lord, now that we would be changed by it. That we would um, come to know you more deeply. That we would come to see Jesus more clearly. That we would come to understand the gospel more fully. And that we might respond in love. We pray all of this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Like many of you, I went out of town for Thanksgiving. And uh, as we were preparing to go out of town, you know, it's always lots of preparation Packing, getting kids packed, getting everybody kind of pointed in the same direction, which is just not as easy as it should be. And in the midst of all of that kind of preparing to go out of town, I got a text from the New Braunfels Utilities, from NBU. And it said, your water meter has been running for 20, no, for 48 hours straight. And... I was really thankful for the text. It's a nice service. But a little frustrated that as I'm about to go out of town, I've got a leak somewhere in my house. So I started doing kind of all the diagnosis. And thankfully, it was one of the most benign things. It was actually in the toilet. There was a leak between uh, the tank of the toilet and the bowl of the toilet. 
So I went to the hardware store. I bought the stuff to replace, you know, the valve things that are inside of there. Bought the kit. Took it all apart. Replaced the thing. You know, there's, of course, like three or four rounds of that because, oh, no, I forgot that thing. It's laying here. i got to take it all apart again. Put it back in. Right. So after all of that, I'm finishing up, and I'm just about to get this thing done and be able to get myself packed and get my family out of town. And I'm I'm tightening up the the, the bolts, you know, that that put the tank onto the bowl there. And I'm thinking, um, I need to get this thing. You know, nice and snug and secure because I don't want it going anywhere. And crack. And I cracked the porcelain tank. I just wanted to... I did, actually. I did scream. I screamed because it was terrible. I felt like I'm at war with my toilet. Like, why is this so hard? Why is life so difficult? A lot of us, you know, this weekend went and spent great time with family. And your time with family was joyful, and it was restful, and it was celebratory, and it was fabulous. A lot of us have that experience. But you know, there's a lot of us that have the opposite experience too in the holidays. Where there's not somebody there that was there last year. Because they're not ever going to be there again. Or... Your brother said he was coming and didn't show up. Or you didn't show up because you can't deal, actually. You can't be in the same room with your brother or your mother or your sister or that uncle that you've had 20 years of really terrible history with. For a lot of us, even spending time with family over the holidays can also feel like a battle. It can feel like we're in a war. Why is this so hard that just getting together with family is so difficult? Maybe you've even felt this more personally, where you've battled something like loneliness for all of your life, where you've deeply battled insecurity or a recurring addiction. Maybe you have just kind of had that feeling of, you know, I keep trying as hard as I can, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I don't seem to be making any progress in life. I don't seem to be getting anywhere, and I'm just getting beaten down all the time. Life can feel oftentimes like a battle. Well, here is the not-so-fun truth of what the Bible says. Is that as Christians, we actually should expect that is that we should expect that life is a battle. We should expect that we are going to be engaged in difficulty in the daily occurrences of life, whether that's in family or whether that's in home repair or whether that's with our own personal struggles and our own walk with the Lord. It is going to be difficult. Now, I hope for some of you that's a confusing statement. I hope you're asking questions right now because we've actually been talking throughout this fall over the course of this sermon series about what Jesus has done for us. In fact, uh, Ephesians 1, the very beginning, you know, Paul opens up and one of the very first things that he says is that Jesus has actually done something cosmically, that he has offered redemption cosmically, that he has actually uh, taken over the world and put his flag in and said, it's all going to be mine. It is all mine now. That is what Jesus actually has said, that God set forth a plan to unite all things in himself and Christ. John says the same thing in 1 John 5. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. 
And then in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says this, The sting of death and the power of sin is, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. See, the Bible actually proclaims all throughout that Jesus has done something decisively that has claimed a victory. That Jesus has done something and he's not gonna have to do it again. In Hebrews we read that Jesus has finally sat down. Having made an offering for us, he sat down and he finished. He said, I don't have to do it again. Regular priests have to go in every year and make an offering. Jesus has said, I've made it and it's done. Two of the most beautiful words in all of scripture is Jesus' words on the cross when he says, it is finished. It's over. The victory has been won. That is the truth of the Bible. So why do we still struggle? Why does it still feel like it's a fight all the time? The answer is, is because our victory has been inaugurated, but not consummated. The victory has begun, but it's not been finalized. Oh, you think about it, if, you've, if you're a sports fan and you've watched a sporting event where there is a decisive score... And you know, after that score happens, the game is over, right? One team scores, there's a minute and a half left, all they have to do is just kind of run out the clock, and you know there's no possible way that the other team can come back. The victory has been secured, but the game is not totally over. The, the zeros haven't gone all the way down yet. Maybe even a better example is in World War II. In World War II, uh, V-Day is the day that we celebrate that the Axis powers uh, signed a treaty saying we surrender. But it was actually almost a year before that the decisive battle happened. That the war was actually won on D-Day. On the Normandy landings is really when the Allied powers claimed that victory. It was another year until the surrender came. And as Christians, what the Bible says is that we live in between D-Day and V-Day. We live in between the time when the decisive battle has been won on the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection have decisively won victory for us, but that surrender has not yet come. And we live in between these times. We live in between those times, and so what we live in is still a struggle, still a battle. And what makes it even more complicated... (laughs) is that the battle we fight is against someone that we can't see and don't often understand. Listen again to verse 12 here. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What the Bible says is that our primary struggle is not with erstwhile relatives or grudge-holding friends or obstinate toilets. Our primary battle is actually with the forces of evil, with Satan himself who wants to destroy us. Now, even when I say those things, I know there's many of you that when you hear that, you want to immediately dismiss it. We are modern people. Our modern sensibilities do not deal well with words like evil forces, right? Spiritual realm. We don't like hearing those things. It's even hard sometimes for me to say it and talk about it. C.S. Lewis said this, though. He said, you know, when, when we're talking about the devil, there are two errors we can make. 
And it's either making too little of him, not thinking about him at all, or making too much of him and thinking about him too much. Let me, let me explain that latter part for a second. When I was, uh, when I was growing up, uh, I was growing up kind of under the time. You remember when the, the first time that, that ratings were put on music? You know, when you kind of have those stickers on, on a CD or whatever that says, you know, this is, this is explicit language. Well, that was just starting to come about, and there was a lot of just kind of fervor about music, particularly rock music, and what it was doing to, to our children and to our brains. And I remember being kind of in the midst of this, and my, and my parents really dealing with it all the time, and I specifically remember my mom bringing home this little pamphlet. And the pamphlet, I think, was called something like Rating Rock Music. And it had, uh, it had a listing of all these different rock bands, and it was like a spreadsheet. And there was columns then with check marks that said things like, you know, violent lyrics, you know, could be checked there. Um, you know, explicit language could be checked there. Backward masking, remember that one? The idea that, uh, that there, was, there was some sort of a subliminal message that was implanted inside the music, and if you played the record backwards, you could hear it. I, mean, I played so many records backwards uh, to see if I could find something. And then there was always this column, there was this column that said, Satanic Overtones. And he would go through and f- I would go through and flip around and find, particularly the bands where that was checked, ooh, that's really interesting, Satanic Overtones, what does that mean? And there was this time where we were looking for satanic overtones, this idea that they were, they were promoting worship of Satan in a way that was really explicit. And I remember even having, we had kind of, um, there were rumors going around with the kids that I believed fully that bands like uh, ACDC, that actually that's what their name stood for, that ACDC stood for Anti-Christian Devil Crusade. Okay? And KISS, the rock band KISS, was Knights in Satan's Service. And I thought that's what they were. I thought that's what it stood for. Here's the thing. While we were looking so hard for satanic overtones, we were actually missing the satanic overtones. KISS just stands for KISS. Okay? (laughs) But you know what their most famous song is? I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. That's the recurring chorus. I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. It's a fun party anthem, but the worldview behind that song is not difficult to interpret. Okay? The image of the good life is absolute indulgence and hedonism. You dive headlong into partying and into pleasing yourself, and that's where you will find happiness and flourishing and fulfillment in life. That's what the image of the good life is. Friends, that is antithetical to what the Bible actually says. (laughs) That is the most satanically overtoned message that you could find, but we missed it because we were looking for something that just kind of sounded more devilly. We're looking for somebody with little horns and a red guy with a pitchfork, and we actually missed what was actually hitting us in the face. C.S. Lewis, a modern himself, dealing as well with oftentimes this mentality that we don't even want to hear these words that talk about spirituality, and particularly evil spirituality. We don't want to talk about that. Lewis wrote a fabulous book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional account of two demons talking to each other. It's actually letters written back and forth between a senior demon named uh, Screwtape and his young apprentice nephew named Wormwood. And the senior demon is teaching this young apprentice what it's like to tempt God's people. 
I want you to just listen to one of those, an, an edited version at least, of one of these letters. My dear Wormwood, you mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient, the person, has continued to attend one church and one church only since he was converted, even though he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask, what are you doing? Why have I had no report on the causes of his fidelity to the parish church? Do you realize that unless it's due to indifference, then it's a very bad thing? Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. The reasons are obvious. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy, that's God, wants him to be a pupil. What he wants of the layman as a church is an attitude which may indeed be critical in the sense of rejecting what is false or unhelpful, but which is wholly uncritical in the sense that it does not appraise, does not waste time in thinking about what it rejects, but lays itself open in uncommenting, humble receptivity to any nourishment that is going. There is hardly any sermon or any book which may not be dangerous to us if it is received in this temper. So get on with it and send this fool the round of the neighborhood churches as soon as possible. Two churches nearest to him, I've already looked up. Both have certain claims, but there is one point which both of these churches have in common. They are both particular party churches. I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. And it isn't the doctrines on which we chiefly depend for promoting malice. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say Mass and those who say Holy Communion and all those purely indifferent things like candles and clothes and whatnot. Those are admirable grounds for our activities. Do you hear what Lewis hits on here? So deftly. He points out how crafty our enemy is. That he's oftentimes actually attacking us in ways that we don't see it at all. In ways that we don't see it coming. Building just simply little bits of disgust in us. A little bit more anxiety. A little bit more arrogance. A little bit less charity such that we become then easily his tools. We are oftentimes looking for these flaming darts, the text says, that come from the devil, and we're looking for them in these grand, grandiose, spiritual ways. Sometimes that happens. But more often than not, the flaming darts of the evil one actually come in really regular stuff. Stuff that actually Paul has just talked about already in chapter 4. Things like unwholesome talk and anger and bitterness and grudges. It's actually those things that begin to take root in our hearts. When a church member begins to complain about the things that he or she doesn't like, this little particular thing that I don't like about my church, and I'm complaining and then I share it with somebody else and it starts to spread. That flaming dart has pierced my heart, but it's also set on fire the whole congregation and it spreads like a wildfire. Those are the flaming darts of the evil one. And they come in ways that we don't even oftentimes see as attacks. They just kind of slip in easily in the back door. That's what Paul says is our state as Christians. 
in a battle, living in a time where we are consistently going to war and in a battle with someone who not only wants to destroy us, but does so in ways oftentimes that we don't even think are attacks. But that's not where the Bible stops, is it? That's not where Paul stops in this passage, is it? In fact, what he says is that in that time, God has actually done something incredible. He has protected us. That God has not only said the victory will be initiated and complete in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there's a promise that I'm making all things new, and when Christ returns, there will be no more, no more strife, no more difficulty, no more battle, none of those things. But even in the midst of that, in the midst of our struggle, God has actually protected us. He has given us His protection. He has given us armor that keeps us from those flaming darts. He has given us armor that protects us so that we might be not only those who can flourish in Him, but also together in our mission in the world. I want to just highlight four really quick things. We're finishing up here, but I want to talk about four things about this armor. We're not going to go through every, every piece that Paul talks about here. Just highlighting four little things about the armor that Paul talks about. Here's the first one. Is that the armor that we've been given is actually God's armor. We have been given God's armor. Now, if you are a Greek scholar, which I am not, and you're looking at a Greek text right now, which I am not, you will know that in Greek, actually, this construction, armor of God, is actually, um, it's, it's kind of odd. It, it can be interpreted a lot of different ways. In fact, in English, we can interpret it a lot of different ways. This could be armor that comes from God. It can be armor that's kind of godly in some way, that's godlike in some way. Or it can be a possessive, armor that belongs to God. That's what Paul is talking about. How do I know? Here's how I know. If you will flip over, actually, if you want to, you can flip over to Isaiah or you can just listen as I do. Just a little aside, if you ever have a question in the Bible and you're wanting to know what it means, uh, use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Look in the little margins in your Bible, and if there's little, if there's scripture references, go follow those references and see what the Bible says in other places about it. Listen to this. This is really cool. This is actually Psalm 49, I'm sorry, Isaiah 49, verse 2. This is talking about the servant of the Lord, the person we're going to talk about next week. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's interesting. Did you hear that? Sword and mouth, that connection. Now flip over to 59. Uh, 59. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. A breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation, we've heard that in Ephesians. And then over in Isaiah 11, uh, chapter 11, oftentimes read in Advent and at Christmas, listen to this, talking about Jesus, the righteous branch of David, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Friends, the armor that we have been given by God has been worn by Him and by Jesus our Savior. It's like Jesus took on this armor and He won the decisive victory for us. He defeated all of our greatest enemies in sin and death. And then He said, okay, listen, I know it's going to be a struggle for you. Here, have my armor. It's battle tested. I've worn it. It works. Put it on you. We get to actually wear God's armor. The thing that has actually already won the victory for us, we get to have. That's the first point. Here's the second. Is that before we get kind of too confused, again, about, we oftentimes think about, you know, 
evil spirits in kind of this really big spiritual realm and we forget that they're sometimes really regular plain stuff, well, we can do the same thing with the armor of God, right? This image is sometimes hard for us to understand because we don't wear armor very often. But here's the point. It's regular, everyday stuff. It's the same stuff that Paul's been talking about, actually, all through his letter. We immerse ourselves in this belt of truth. Well, that's God's Word. We put on this righteous breastplate. Well, that is the righteousness of Jesus that's been won for us. We put on this helmet of salvation. That's the salvation that Paul's been talking about all through the letter. We pray. We get together to do it. We worship. It's the regular stuff of the life of the Christian. Word. Worship. Prayer. People. WWPP. Okay? Just think about that. Word. Worship. Prayer. People. Those are the regular things that God gives us to say, listen, if you want to be protected... If you want to be protected from the onslaughts of the evil one that you don't even see coming, then immerse yourself in my word. Then come and be transformed in worship. Then immerse yourself in prayer and commune with me. Be with my people and experience all of that in community. It's the regular stuff, friends. The things that God has given us, He hasn't hid them from us. He's given them to us so that we might be protected. Here's the third piece is this protection isn't just for ourselves, it's actually for others. Is that, again, as a church body, Paul is talking not just to individual Christians here. He's talking to a community. And what he is saying is that this protection is not just for you to individually have, it's for you to have for one another. You can see this interplay going on when Paul says, here's the armor of God, Take take it up, put it on, have courage. And then he says, pray for me, that I might be strengthened. You see that interplay there? He gave it to us again in chapter 4 when he talked about the gifts that God has given. That God has actually apportioned different gifts to different people. We talked about the beauty of unity and diversity together. Well, the same thing is true with this armor of God. That we get to use it for one another. To benefit one another. When I am not submersing myself in God's word, you know what I need? I need people around me who are speaking the truth to me. When I am failing in my faith, I need people who can preach the gospel to me in gentle and loving ways. I need need you to pray for me. And we need each other to walk alongside together. People who need help, who are helping people. Walking side by side so that we might be armored together and protect one another. And then here's the final thing. Is that this armor is also for mission. Gene Johnson helped me see this this week, and I'm grateful, Gene, for this. Armor is interesting, right? So, if God wanted us to stay put and be the most protected, probably the image would have been a wall. It would have been a castle. The most protective things for people who are staying put are big walls and big castles and big armaments, right? They're bunkers. But that's not what God gave us. Armor is actually mobile. It goes with us. It's protection that moves forward. And what Jesus has said is not only that I have proclaimed this victory, that I have, that I have scored the winning touchdown, that I have actually uh, made the decisive battle, but that there's also going to be advancement. And he has brought us in even to that role. That we might move out 
outside of the fortress of the church, outside of the walls, outside of the places that oftentimes are very comfortable, and into the world around us, that those around us might actually see the truth, the righteousness of Jesus, the salvation that is offered to them, the beautiful gospel of peace, that they might see who the Lord is simply by who we are out in the world. I don't know where you're feeling attacked today. Maybe you're not. But my guess is there's some part of you that is feeling the struggle. Let me encourage you with the Apostle Paul. As he, as he finishes this letter, have courage. Take up the Lord's strength, the things that He has given to us. Immerse yourself in God's Word. Immerse yourself in the Gospel. Immerse yourself in worship and move forward knowing that He is there to protect you. Let's pray that He would enable us to do that even now. Our Father, we thank You for being a God who has not left us alone. For being a God who has promised to protect us, to even clothe us with Your own armor. Lord, we do know uh, it's a fight. That is not oftentimes a truth that we want to come to grips with. Because um, either we want things to be easy or we want to think that we can handle it all. Lord, you've told us that neither of those is true. But what is true is that you can handle it. So Lord, we ask that you would increase in us strength. Not in our own strength, but in yours. Courage, not in our own abilities, but in yours. And Lord, armor. Not built by us, but built by you. That we might move forward into the world proclaiming your goodness and grace. Will you empower us to do that today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.